You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Rachel Pilch-Loeb, preparedness fellow in the Division of Policy, Translation, and Leadership Development. This call was recorded at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, April 8th. Dr. Pilch-Loeb, do you have any uh, opening comments for us? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, Thank you for joining today. Uh, As Nicole mentioned, uh, my background is in uh, public health emergency preparedness and risk communication with uh, my work currently focuses largely on uh, the vaccine rollout as well as issues related to vaccine hesitancy and uh, attempts to improve uh, government communications and efforts related to the vaccine. Uh, I'm happy to take questions on any of those related topics and we'll do my best to answer uh, anything that uh, is on your mind this afternoon. Um, So I think we can go ahead and and get uh, going with the specific questions. Great, thank you, Dr. Pilchlow. All right, first question. Um, Yes, hi, thanks for taking our questions today. Um, I I was just wondering if if you have any um, insight on what is happening with uh, J&J vaccine supplies. Um, Maine and I I noticed a bunch of other states are are reporting uh, much lower allocations to the state vaccination program. Um, But I'm also aware that a lot of those doses flow to the federal retail pharmacy program and those numbers for next week haven't been announced yet. Um, But the state vaccination program has been announced. Um, But then at the same time, there was that problem with the manufacturing plant in Baltimore. And I guess I'm just wondering if you know what's going on with the J&J supply. Sure. Um, so it, it, of course, varies state to state, state but um, to, to kind of head off a couple of the, the things you broke up, brought up, excuse me. Um, first, the, the issues at the Baltimore plant do not affect any of the doses that the federal government has, is allocating right now. Um, so that, well, of course, uh, you know, we're, we're concerned about that and uh, for, for future doses that, that is unrelated to any supply related issues or distribution at this point in time, so worth, worth being aware of. All of the doses that we, we are currently allocating um, have come from the, the plant in Europe. Um, in terms of uh, the, the allocation that states are taking or getting related to J&J, uh, there are a few different things that, that may be going on. And again, it, it probably varies state to state, but just uh, at the uh, across states, um, a lot of J&J uh, vaccines have been, as you said, allocated to particular programs in, uh, in addition to being allocated to particular populations or uh, homebound groups. Because it's one shot, some states Uh, are considering how those uh, single doses can be used most effectively for people who perhaps can't come to a mass vaccination site, a pharmacy, or some other location that would require them uh, to come in person to that location, obviously, to get get the dose. Um, And so if they're going to be being delivered kind of in a mobile clinic or uh, for a a group that that needs to be staying home or uh, has other limitations, they're being kind of allocated uh, uh, separately. So that, that's why we're kind of seeing separate allocation of streams of the particular, of the J&J vaccine in particular, uh, and why some states perhaps have been critiqued for not uh, uh, using them as quickly as they've been receiving them. Okay, but uh, thanks. Um, uh, but I, I'm wondering if you know uh, about specifically about next week, um, I, I know it's not just Maine. I, I was reading news, you know, a bunch of other states or New Jersey and a whole bunch of other states are reporting lower doses uh, next week. Um, 
it, does that mean there was just like a, a, a blip in the supply production or is it being, um, are the doses being diverted to pharmacies or other programs? Do you know? My understanding is the doses are being allocated to a variety of different programs. And so the, the dip to particular states may be because of uh, other, the allocation kind of priority is, is shifting where J&J could possibly be being used differently to pharmacies, pharmacies or federally qualified uh, or federally oriented programs that are not uh, kind of managed by the state supply. Beyond that, I don't have any additional specifics I can offer at this point. Okay, thank you. Do, uh, can I ask a follow-up on a different topic? Is that okay? That is a question for Nicole. Oh, absolutely. Please go ahead. Okay. I'm fine with it, of course. All right, thank you. I, I just uh, didn't know. Um, and, and this is not related to vaccines, but um, you know, la last week there was a... Um, now, the, the U.S. CDC came out with that uh, report showing uh, COVID was the third leading cause of death in the United States. Um, in Maine and a few other states, uh, Hawaii, Vermont, a few others, um, the death rate was much, much lower. And I, I'm trying to, to determine how much of that is because of just chance or geography or versus um, state uh, restrictions like mask mandates, mask mandates, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's really difficult to unpack, but I can offer a few uh, suggestions or, or reasons that I think that the death rate um, was, was less in particular locations. I think first we need to think about the, the, the population itself that was impacted. So, you know, we know that it was elderly uh, and, and nursing home um, residents, perhaps, or, you know, particular populations who were dying at higher rates, much higher rates of COVID-19. So we have to think about, you know, we're, what's the distribution of people in Maine, Vermont, Hawaii, you know, places where we saw lower death rates, what's the distribution of, of people who would fall into those groups who may have even been kind of in the pool to be kind of at that highest risk of death from COVID. Um, so the, the, the numbers and, and the rates kind of in that population group are potentially a lot lower than in some, some other states where the kind of population distribution looks a little, bit, a little bit different, as well as the number of nursing home or long-term care facilities or locations where we were seeing these much higher rates of death in comparison to, to general population groups. So one factor is kind of population distributions that were existing in those, those locations. That's not the only only thing going on, you know. Um, in in part, you know, in Maine, in or I, I'm more familiar with with Vermont and a little bit with Hawaii. But the um, early action to curb the spread of the virus, even prior to uh, the situation kind of being out of out of control, you know, Vermont, for example, was taking public health action uh, even though their, their case counts and numbers were not necessarily increasing at the same rate we were seeing in other states, that early intervention um, to reduce the spread of the virus and kind of prevent people from even encountering the virus prior to uh, you know, those numbers really being uh, kind of continuing to go up and up, uh, likely had an impact on reducing the likelihood that somebody who was at high risk for COVID would come in, into contact with the virus or, and then 
obviously have a severe infection and die from it. So we have kind of uh, population distribution as a factor. We have early intervention of public health measures as a second um, factor. And then we have kind of this, this um, notion that uh, the, the early intervention is kind of connected to the idea that the virus also possibly uh, didn't reach kind of some of those more at-risk populations in the same way that it did in other locations. So again, we know that particular, uh, that people living in particular kind of um, congregate settings or in multi-generational housing uh, were dying at increased rates from COVID-19 and those facilities may have just been large, spared at higher, there are a higher proportion of those facilities may have been spared in, in some of those locations, which is why we're in particular seeing the death rates be lower. So I think it's a variety, a confluence of factors, but those are three that come to mind. Okay, thanks a lot. Of course. Uh, next question, David Beenick from WCVB. Doctor, thank you very much for talking to us today. I wanted to get your hot reaction to some news we're just getting that Walmart is expanding its vaccination program to 48 states, including here in Massachusetts. Has Walmart really been a big player in other states? And do you think this will help given that perhaps Walmart has a different clientele than some of the CVS, Walgreens, and other places that have been distributing up until now? Yeah, I think it's an exciting uh, uh, development. Uh, as you're suggesting, we it, it's important for stores uh, or pharmacies, various uh, private sector companies that are frequented by a variety of different folks, some who have higher rates of hesitancy, some clientele which may have higher rates of hesitancy than others. Um, you know, it, it, their involvement is likely to, in the presence of kind of a vaccination clinic at a store that people are already comfortable going to, uh, is kind of a can only help to increase our rates of vaccination. So it's hard to say uh, the, the scale of what the, uh, you know, how big a player Walmart has been in the success of vaccine rollout in other states, but it's exciting to see that they're on board in a, in a larger partnership. Uh, the vaccine rollout approach needs to be multi-pronged, right? We need those large scale mass vaccination clinics. We need the pharmacies. Uh, we need to be at a place where uh, primary care and, and uh, physicians can be delivering the vaccine. Basically, we want the vaccine to be in places that people already feel comfortable going. We need to be bringing vaccine to people and Walmart being a, a big uh, player that's on board uh, can only help to improve that. And a kind of a 30,000 foot question uh, about vaccine hesitancy. We've seen some of the poll numbers shifting that people of color are less hesitant to get the vaccine now, but there seems to be a solid block of resistance among I think it's Republican men um, that seem to be the, the hardest nut to crack, for lack of a better expression. Um, have governments been, uh, do they need to refocus their public uh, outreach campaigns to given that the fact that the population of hesitant people is perhaps shif shifting? Yeah, it's an excellent point. So we've seen um, vaccine hesitancy in a variety of different subgroups. Uh, I've seen high, fairly high rates among evangelical Christians, uh, as you're mentioning, Republican men. We know that uh, various communities of color have different, uh, had previously had high levels of vaccine hesitancy. I think one of the key things to keep in mind is that there are there are really varied reasons why people are vaccine hesitant. So yes, we should think about um, 
revamping or, or expanding the kind of public health communication strategy, but that really requires us to understand what's the root cause of why they're hesitant. And it's going to be pretty different for a Republican man, whatever other intersectionalities that person has, and somebody who is perhaps a member of a, uh, a community of color or a particular uh, religious group, though there, there may be some intersection between the evangelical Christian group and the uh, Republican group. Um, so for example, is it fear that they, uh, are they anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitant because they, they don't like the idea of government compelling them to get a medical intervention? Is it because they don't trust the, the science or development of the vaccine? You know, what is that root issue? Because it's really hard to address hesitancy if we don't address the underlying question, concern, uh, or, or reason for skepticism. So absolutely, we need to be looking into this in more detail, but it's not as simple, let, let's target the existing message to that population. It's what is the message and what is the, the root cause of the concern? Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi there. Thank Hi. you for taking the time today. Um, so this is a question about state allocations. Um, with nearly half of new infections being found in only five states, the idea has been floated that these states should have more vaccine allotment. So what is your take on this? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and it, it's something that we've been thinking about a lot. So the reality is that um, you know the vaccine is one way getting vaccinated. You know, you get your after your your second dose or even after your two weeks after your first dose. We, we're already seeing that there is an you know a, a significant decrease in in rates of COVID. So the idea being, and I recognize that you you will likely know this, but the thirty foot view is um, if we allocate more vaccine to states where. Uh, there are, are increasing number of infections, we more rapidly can reduce the likelihood that that, in, that kind of outbreak is going to continue to spread because it, the virus will have fewer people to infect if more people have been, been vaccinated. And one way to increase the number of people who have been vaccinated is to make sure the states have enough doses to keep vaccinating people. Um, so the concept is that the federal government, the Biden administration, should be allocating doses to where we are seeing uh, an increasing number of cases. And that frankly would, could make a lot of sense. So the reality is that if states are currently using their entire vaccine supply and are waiting on more to vaccinate people and, and are seeing this uh, large scale outbreak happening like in Michigan, and I know New Jersey is having a similar issue, uh, increased supply would, would be well served in these locations. There are other states where there are um, a variety of vaccine appointments that are, are available uh, and that are kind of going, going unused. And so the supply could potentially be reallocated from states where there seems to be sufficient supply at the moment for say one to two weeks and uh, recalibrated uh, after that. So this doesn't need to be a a forever shift in approach, but it could be something that is um, is considered so that the uh, federal uh, approach can be a little bit more nimble to recognizing where there is uh, an increasing outbreak. Now, it's important to also recognize that yes, we see that there are five states where there are, um, that are accounting for nearly half of the new cases of COVID. 
We also know though, that that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the outbreak is uh, actually uh, decreasing in other places. We know that testing has also gone down in a variety of other states. And we know that uh, a variety of other states are uh, exemplifying their pandemic fatigue in, in other ways and are perhaps less conscientious about looking for the virus, tracking um, where, it, where it is and who it's impacting. So there may very well be cases that we are unaware of, significant number of cases, um, and the pandemic is still continuing to spread kind of un, unchecked and untracked. And um, we still need to be giving the vaccine in places where we're not seeing kind of that growing level of uh, new cases. Because the reality is that the virus doesn't know state borders <laughs> at all. And the vaccine is still incredibly important even in places where there is not a, uh, in a large scale growing outbreak like in these five states that we're, we're mentioning. So I guess key takeaways is yes, that strategy uh, makes sense, especially when there are not kind of an abundance of, um, we seem to have the supply. The strategy makes sense when we have the supply to do so. Uh, that being said, the, the second kind of key takeaway is we know that the pandemic is still going on, even in places that are doing less testing, where we may not be seeing the number of cases because we're not looking for the number of cases by testing people in those locations. And the vaccine distribution is still incredibly important in all of those places. I'm so glad you mentioned supply because that's what my next question was going to be about. So I hear a lot about how we need to vaccinate as quickly as possible to avoid the emergence of new variants. Um, but is that realistically possible that we can produce and administer enough vaccine to outrun the emergence of those new variants here in the U.S.? Or is that just kind of like a pipe dream? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, you know, the, the speed in which um, kind of viruses evolve. So I'll back up. We know that there are always going to be variants of a virus. It's natural for viruses to evolve over time. That the fact that we are seeing variants isn't in and of itself newsworthy from my perspective. What is the big question mark is, can the vaccines address those variants and are the variants more infectious, more deadly? You know, what are, what are the kind of uh, factors associated with those variants? So far, we have good news that it seems like the vaccine is able to, um, the vaccine works for the variants that we're seeing. The uh, vaccine that was originally from the vaccine, the variant that was originally from the UK, the South African variant, et cetera. The, the vaccines we have are currently able to, to work towards those variants. That may not always be the case. Uh, and we don't know because it depends in what ways the virus changes in the new variant. So is it, it's not a pipe dream. Uh, to say that we need to vaccinate people kind of before they come in contact with these variants. It's absolutely possible um, to think that we will have kind of sufficient supply to vaccinate the majority of the adult population over the next few months. I mean, we're, we are going at an incredible pace. Uh, you know, 3 million people are getting vaccinated a day. That's fantastic. And we're, you know, up to nearly 48% of the population having received one dose is also fantastic. Um, I think that we will continue, though, to see pockets of the population that have vaccine hesitancy or that can't get the vaccine for a variety of reasons. We know that kids are, are a long ways away from getting from being considered um, eligible for the vaccine. Um, and so 
we what we want to do is get as many people who are able to be vaccinated vaccinated as quickly as possible uh, so that we reduce the likelihood uh, that we come in contact with a variant that the vaccine doesn't work for. Um, and so why we say it's kind of a, a race against time or a race against the variants is because we don't always know how the virus is going to evolve, how it's going to vary in those variants, uh, so to speak. Um, and what we want to do is, is get as many people vaccinated uh, with this kind of working vaccine as quickly as possible to kind of reduce that opportunity that we come into contact with, with a new variant. Thank you. Of course. Uh, next question. Hello, can you hear me? Hi, yes. Great, thanks so much. Um, I appreciate your time and I appreciate that you've made yourself available for these conversations. Um, forgive me for the question if you've already covered it, but um, if we could briefly just say what the five states are that are driving more than half of the number of new cases, uh, if I've got that correct. It's Michigan, New Jersey, and, and who else? Yep, it's Michigan. Let me see if I can remember off the top of my head. Um, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, um, and I think it was for Florida and Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Jersey, Florida, Pennsylvania, New York. And I think it's close to half. I'm not, you know, as we can get new numbers, it's somewhere between 40 and 50% of the new cases that were, are, are being tracked on a, a, a daily, weekly basis. I think this has been difficult for me and others to pin down as we slice and dice this data so many different ways. But are, yes. are we able to say that younger people are driving that upward trend in those five states? Do we see the age distribution working out that way? Yeah, so I, I've, it's a really good question. And I think slicing and dicing the data is a good way to describe it. So yes, we are seeing um, the number of cases. Uh, there's a high number of cases in younger populations. Um, so the, the new cases are, are allocated to younger age groups, especially in comparison to earlier phases of the pandemic. Um, that in, in and of itself is not particularly surprising because we have to think about who has gotten the vaccine so far, right? Three quarters mm -hmm. of, of 75 and older have, have been vaccinated uh, in, in the majority of, of the country. So we wouldn't expect to be seeing new cases there. We also are likely doing a lot less testing in that group, right? This kind of goes hand in hand. The group that's getting vaccinated um, are less likely, frankly, to have new cases of COVID. They're also less likely to be being tested for the virus because they're now protected by having had the vaccine. So we're looking for the virus in groups that are less likely to have had uh, the vaccine and, um, inherently that means we're looking at at younger adults so yes i think the answer is we're seeing the the new the number of cases in uh younger younger adults younger age groups um but it also has to do with how we are, are testing them and and uh, the fact that they haven't uh, been vaccine eligible over the last few weeks okay that makes sense thank you and apologies that i think this is my dog he doesn't really bark but he said <laughs> i didn't even that you no were going to talk that he's going to start barking um so uh, a follow-up question to this. Uh, you said kids are a long way off from getting a vaccine, but there's already tensions there around acceptance of the vaccine. Um, and we can kind of already see where this is going in the sense that Michigan, for example, um, had a court case that ruled in favor of parents who didn't want their children being tested for um, contact sports, right? Um, 
there's just a resistance here to some sports, you can't wear masks and there was resistance for parents to allow for their child to be tested because if their child tested positive, then that means that they wouldn't be able to participate in sports. So what should the messaging, you know, I, I always think about this as like, we're a little behind here, but where do you think the messaging should go, um, you know, moving forward in terms of making sure that younger people are receiving vaccine um, and, and that that group has the same you know, level of penetration in terms of uh, vaccine usage as other groups? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And it, it's probably the, I don't want to say the next frontier. We've had so many frontiers, um, but an, a, a, a rising kind of issue that we're going to see. Um, so I, I guess there's two things. One is we have kind of uh, vaccine hesitancy or, or confusion, I think, already in kind of the youngest adult group, maybe that 18 to 24 Gen Z, whatever you whatever gen people are these days, um, where we have already not kind of communicated why, if at all, it's important for that group to be getting the vaccine. And we're seeing, for example, colleges requiring that, that people be vaccinated prior to coming back. And so that's right where that age group is, where yes, they're considered technically adults. They may still be very likely to be influenced by their parents, especially if they are you know, attending in that group that may be attending college or considering it. Um, and we're going to be encountering these issues whereby the vaccine is an expectation for them to participate in particular activities. This kind of concept that the vaccine is required in the same way that a meningitis shot is or an MMR vaccine or whatever it is. Um, so we have that group and then we have uh, minors, right? People who are under 18, um, younger children, uh, uh, where the vaccine currently is still being tested and developed, you know, the trials are ongoing for, for kids. Um, and we, there, there's kind of a, a few different things, I guess, to consider or two different kind of buckets of messaging, depending on the role in which parents are going to play in the agents or the, the level of agency of the individual to be getting vaccinated. Um, I think that there, so going back to what I was saying before, vaccine hesitancy is such a constellation of different beliefs that people have, right? There is, there is um, fear around potential side effects or long-term consequences of the vaccine. There is perception that government should not be telling individuals what to do uh, around a vaccine, meaning shouldn't be compelling them to get it in any way, shape, or form. Um, that private businesses shouldn't be expecting them to uh, using it as an expectation for people to to come in or to participate, et cetera, uh, as you were already pointing out relating to the testing. Um, so I think that the the messaging needs to be both at the individual and the community level, meaning the vaccine it protects you from COVID-19, um, even a, a potentially rare, uh, the, the potentially rare kind of outcome that a, a younger person would get COVID-19, have a severe infection or die from it um, is preventable. So even if it's unlikely, it's preventable if we get the vaccine, um, right, if you get the vaccine. Um, and, and so there's individual level benefits to the, to the person, but there's also those community level benefits, meaning, you know, if you get the vaccine, you can participate in, in life in a different way. You can hug your grandparents uh, and, and your parents and you can uh, kind of engage in activities that perhaps you didn't or other people around you didn't feel comfortable doing um, previously. So I think we need to be highlighting both the individual and, and community level benefits. That's very general though. 
beyond mm -hmm. that, we really need to be having conversations about those underlying issues. Um, and so similar to another question that some somebody else uh, brought up is uh, kind of, you know, there are different groups who are uh, vaccine hesitant, or we've seen kind of changes in, in who's hesitant. And uh, that's a reflection of kind of um, growing differences in sentiment around why people are hesitant. So I think we're seeing an increase in hesitancy among people who do not think that this should be, uh, the government shouldn't be involved in this space. And yeah. we're seeing um, a decrease in hesitancy among people who, who perhaps had mistrust in medicine or, um, you know, didn't feel like the information was out there for them to access because we have done a relatively good job or, or are doing a better job of uh, reaching kind of community leaders, religious figures, et cetera, who have, um, who can be kind of public health community partners in, the, in, uh, in that space. And I think similarly, when we talk about young adults and we think about um, kind of older minors, we need to also be thinking about who are the right risk communicators to reach those groups. So it's our content, which should focus on individual and community benefit. It's our approach, which needs to under, um, which needs to identify the underlying kind of vaccine hesitancy beliefs and concerns. And then it's our messengers. So Instagram influencers, teachers, coaches, people who can be kind of public health community partners who are already familiar to the audiences we're trying to reach. Thank you for answering that. I appreciate it. Um, Nicole, can I ask one more quick question? Sure, please do. Okay, thank you. Um, I wanna talk about vaccine passports and where they're, uh, not what are they good for, but like where is- yeah, Sorry, you cut out there for a second. I, I just heard you want to talk about vaccine passports. I apologize. Yeah. It might be my connection. No, that's okay. Um, to talk about vaccine passports, I want to ask the question like what are they good for, but really what, what application do they work best? <laughs> yeah, um, so it's a good question. Um, I think that they work best in a setting where um, I'm trying to think about how best to answer this. Vaccine passports work best in a setting where we want to make sure the event doesn't result in a COVID outbreak or the situation doesn't uh, potentially uh, lead to um, viral spread. So for example, you can imagine uh, why or the introduction say of the virus to a place that otherwise doesn't have it. So. It's not unreasonable, and I, I, don't, I already don't like the term vaccine passports because I think it brings to mind something that's uh, already people feel uncomfortable with, and I think we want to break it down into the, basically we're talking about proof of vaccination or a vac uh, demonstrating that you have a vaccine, um, and then we can, then there's the separate, like, what's the appropriate technology or support to do it, but proof of vaccination, let's say, it it makes some sense. Let's say you're an individual going to visit a nursing home or going to a particular event where in theory, nobody else there would possibly have COVID. Demonstrating that you have a vaccine, really unlikely to be bringing in the virus, makes some sense. Similarly, if you're traveling, let's say, and you're going to a country where COVID is not endemic, um, or uh, they are dealing, they, they're concerned about the possible introduction of whatever your, the COVID viruses in the US and want to make sure that it's unlikely that you have it. Let's say we're going to Israel. Israel's done a really good job of controlling the virus. They don't want to run the risk that somebody's going to be bringing in a new strain or COVID in general. So you have to show uh, proof of vaccination. 
I'm offering those as examples where we can logically see why demonstrating proof of vaccination makes sense. Similarly to attending, attending school or attending college, you wanna participate in an activity or do something, the school or entity does not want to take on the likelihood that there would be an outbreak in that setting, proof of vaccination makes sense. When we think about a vaccine passport, just to go about kind of our daily life, I think we're getting into a more complicated calculus of what is the purpose as you're suggesting. Um, meaning we there are a variety of, of things that all of us carry that we all have different health risks and different ways in which we live, et cetera. Um, and we don't walk around with a card that says, you know, I had, I don't walk around with a card that, that demonstrates my vaccination record more generally. I'm not sure that COVID is particularly different and different from those other sorts of viruses. So I think that, you know, there are settings where it makes sense. And then there are settings where I think it's still questionable how valuable the passport would be. It, when you say it's questionable how valuable that passport would be, I, I think the perspective that I'm seeing, especially in New York, is you know, a pass that gets you into your office, a pass that gets you into a Broadway show, um, something that you flash at the maitre d' before you show up for dinner. You know, I agree, I, I do understand that like, it's a much different thing if you're trying to get into a nursing home, um, but then if you're trying to get into a restaurant, but I do wonder like, what is the specific line philosophically that you're willing to draw on that? Is it risk to other people? Is it that uh, the risk outweighs the benefits of you being able to eat a dinner? If you could just sort of yeah, hone no, in a little I, bit more I, on your thinking. Yeah, I, I appreciate you pushing you pushing um, the thinking forward. Um, I, I think that the value of the passport lies in, in, in a, it's an approach to risk reduction, right? The reality, the reality is that people who can show proof of vaccination are far less risk to each other and so being able to show that proof of vaccination means that participation for everybody else there um, is safer or, or less risky, right? We, we never use the word <laughs> safe. Um, so I, um, that, that's where the value kind of lies. Uh, and it's in particularly important in a, in a setting where um, we know that there are, there are there, that COVID is still a risk to a variety of, of people, either who can't, haven't had the vaccine, don't wanna get the vaccine, can't get the vaccine, don't have access to it yet, et cetera. Uh, that being said, people who are likely at highest risk for a severe COVID-19 hospitalization and death, you know, the, the oldest adults, people who have been living in nursing homes, if we kind of look at who's been most adversely impacted are, are probably the least likely to be in some of those settings anyways. Uh, or would you, you know, this is, this becomes like kind of a, a trade-off between, uh, not a trade-off, a balance between um, the trying to reduce the risk to as many people in society as possible. That's that, and that's where the argument for vaccine passports uh, is coming in. The more people who are interacting, who have the vaccine and can show the that they have been vaccinated the more uh, additional individuals who can feel comfortable uh, participating, right? The collective is, is not going to be spreading COVID-19. Um, and so that's, that's the argument supporting them and their value. Thank I'm not you very sure much. if I, I follow-up answered your question or not. I hope it, I hope it did. It did, thank you so much. 
next question. I thought, why not? <laughs> I'll shoot my shot again. Uh, so we know the UK variant or B117 is now the predominant strain here in the US. So what does that mean for us moving forward? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure it means my, uh, too much more than what we already are doing, if that makes any sense. So we recognize that, yes, that is the strain that the dominant strain that's circulating. We think that or we have some evidence that it was more transmissible, um, possibly more deadly than pro the, the prior strain. We also, though, know that the vaccines we currently have are working um, against that variant. So I don't I don't actually think it changes much about our public health calculus at the moment, um, besides the recognition that that is the, the variant that we're dealing with uh, and the importance of continuing to track the different variants. So we recognize when we when there is a change and we possibly need to understand more about what it is about that variant that may shift our, our approach. Um, I think that one of the things I'm always struck by is that we see headlines about these different variants, but it a new variant in and of itself is not necessarily novel, right? We expect that there's going to be new variants. So it's really what I want to know or what 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 I would like to think or how I orient my thinking around this is, what is it about that variant that we should be concerned about? And it may not be anything yet, right? So it's more just the acknowledgement that there are different variants of the virus, that we need to be conscious of what those variant characteristics are, and we want to ensure that our vaccines can continue to work for those variants. I asked someone previously if we have the levels of genomic surveillance at the moment to keep a good track of these variants, and the answer was no. Are we making progress on that front? Are we better suited now to track them? I think still no. Um, I think that there is an acknowledgement that we need to be doing more genomic sequencing and tracking. I know that the CDC is uh, has acknowledged that and is, I think, putting a foot forward to be doing that, but we seem kind of a step behind in tracking the the variants and the genomic sequencing. Um, and it's certainly not being done as uh, widespread or robustly as I think we would like it to be. Okay, thank you. Uh, looks like that's our last question for right now, but I always have questions, so I'm going to go ahead. Um, so uh, President Biden has pushed up the eligibility for everybody to April 19th. Do you foresee any issues with that with the vaccine rollout, or is it just everybody can get a vaccine now and you're still going to have a tough time getting a slot? Yeah, so I think that um, that's a, a, good, a good question. Um, I think that the, we, we don't yet no, I think that there's already been a challenge, right, related to uh, vaccine appointments, at least in a variety of the locations that I'm familiar with. The systems keep still keep crashing. The appointments are filled within a certain amount of time, recognizing that there are other states where that's not, not an issue. But I know in Massachusetts, for example, when things opened on Monday, there were issues. New York, there's been ongoing challenges, though it's gotten a lot better. Um, so moving up the in eligibility in and of itself doesn't mean that uh, the the systems aren't going to be there, or the appointments aren't going to be there to support it, but we likely will have people who are still needing to make appointments when they can get them a few weeks out. Uh, I think that the idea is that, you know, if everybody is eligible, that eligibility in and of itself is no longer a barrier to entry. 
meaning that eligibility is not preventing anybody who wants a vaccine from going to get it. And now in terms of our communication strategy, we can engage with people, all adults, right, who are on the table uh, to, to have these discussions around vaccine hesitancy and nobody can say, well, I'm not eligible. So I'm just going to wait till I'm at the end of the line. Well, now it's the end of the line. So let's, let's have those conversations and get down to kind of the root causes of why somebody may be hesitant. So from that perspective, the outreach risk communication perspective, the, the lifting of the eligibility criteria, I think makes, uh, means that those, those strategies can shift a, a little bit. Okay, and, and you kind of touched on this a little bit. There are some Massachusetts people are still scrambling for slots, um, but there are other places in the country where people uh, seem to be, I think maybe vaccine hesitancy seems to be a little bit more common and that there are, there's been less of a push and more of a decline in vaccine rates. Um, do you see that as, as a saturation that everybody who wants a vaccine has gotten one and there's now getting into the hesitancy? Or what do you think is going on there with the, some of those decline in vaccination rates? So I'm not looking at the data at the moment, but one one thought I have um, when I was trying to to look at some of the numbers um, this morning, but I just didn't didn't um, flesh it out enough. But uh, in in some places where um, let's say mask mandates have been lifted or businesses are open. Um, and vaccines are available, but perhaps there's some vaccine availability um, and say cases aren't going up or are being tracked less. I think that there is this perception that the virus is done or gone away. Uh, and I think that perception that COVID is less of a risk also means the perception it, that is related to the perception perhaps that the vaccine is not needed right now. Um, and so in an ideal world, what we would have had happen is in tandem with um, certain levels of vac vaccination, certain declines in, in uh, the number of new cases, not as a result of a reduction in testing, but as a result of an actual decline, that's when uh, other public health measures would have been lifted. But we haven't had that. So I think the perception that the virus was kind of going away on its own or, or declining on its own pre-existed kind of the some of the vaccine rollout. And so I think that it's not that perhaps means we've reached saturation, at least for now, and it's going to take kind of some more concerted effort to encourage vaccine uptake in places where there is that perception that the, the virus isn't as much of an issue or where there's increased pandemic fatigue. People have already kind of returned to their regular way of life. I think there is, uh, a, we have created uh, this challenge that the vaccine doesn't seem like it's necessary or needed uh, in certain locations. And so, um, that's going to take some some public health effort to uh, increase, uh, I think, the uptake in some locations. Thank you. Um, I don't know if anybody else has a question out there. Uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Otherwise, I, we might be all set for today. Looks like. Um, Dr. Pilchlope, do you have any final thoughts for us before we go? No, thank you uh, all very much. Uh, I appreciate you you taking the time and I hope I was able to answer your questions. This concludes the April 8th press conference.